church and read all those things. Each of us would like to do it. For Advent, let me tell you what we plan to do for the next, I'll be preaching the next four weeks. I'm going to do four messages from Matthew 1 through 2, the genealogy of Jesus, the birth narrative that you're familiar with, but that will be a good series for us to do for the next four weeks, and then I'll have some time off after that. So this will be a short message series on Advent 21 on Matthew 1 and 2, the birth narratives of Jesus, which are interesting, familiar, but ends in just a very sinister way at the end of Matthew 2, as we will see. So as we prepare to look into God's word, uh, let's pray with me. God of mercy, you've promised never to break your covenant with us. Amid all the changing words of our generation, speak your eternal word that does not change, that we may respond to your gracious promises with faithful and obedient lives. Through our Lord Jesus Christ, amen. The text this morning is on the family tree of Jesus, so I want you to think about the tree, and with things like Ancestry.com, I bet some of you have looked into your own family tree. Well, I have been thinking about that, both my mother and my father. I'm 100% Scottish. I've talked a little bit about my mother. Her parents came over from Edinburgh, Scotland, and settled in Vancouver, Canada. My grandfather, of course, who I never knew, he was a tugboat captain way up in Prince Rupert, way in northern Canada. Now, on my, and his last name was Tuck, so my mom's maiden name is Grace Tuck. It's a wonderful name. My father was a McRae, of course, and so we are from the McRae clan. And my father, who passed away some 15 years ago, was looking into the family tree, and before he died, I learned from what he could. He learned what he could about our own family tree. And I thought I would share with you what I learned, if you're interested. Apparently, we go back to King Egbert in 700 in England. I don't know him. He lived a, he's a little bit before our time, but that may be where we start. And my name is Bruce, so who am I named after? Well, Sir Robert the Bruce, of course, and some of my friends affectionately call me the Bruce because it's Sir Robert the Bruce. He lived from 1274 to 1329, but I'm not related to him except uh, he's just my namesake. And, but the McRae clan, it has a crest with a sword, Fortitudine, which means resolve and strength. I like that. And the McRae clan, I'm just going to give you some facts from what we know about the McRae clan. The McRae clan was always known for its physical prowess and good looks. And it's nice to know that certain things haven't changed, right? <laughs> and we were involved in a mutiny, 
so we were known as the Wild McCrays. My ancestors were regularly involved in the legal and illegal making of Scotch whiskey. That's called bootlegging, I believe. And my father's ancestors settled in the southeastern United States at some point way back. There is a McRae, Georgia, that belongs to me. There is also a McRae's Tavern in Lawrenceville. That belongs to me, too. But they, they settled up and down the coast. And, and my father's ancestors went to Western Canada during the War of 1812. You may remember, they were loyalists. They were loyal to the crown. They weren't going to submit to the to the colony colonial government, so that's why they went to Canada, from what we know, which is why my father grew up in Vancouver, Canada. One of the other things that's interesting is that in our clan, there has been a massive fight over who is the, the chief of our clan. There's always... If you've ever been to the Stone Mountain Games, the Scottish Games, every, every clan makes a big deal of who they are. And there is a chief of the clan, but there has been a massive dispute over that. So right now we have no chief. And in 1909, there was a man named Sir Colin McRae who put his bid in, but they wouldn't let him have it. So he, our son Colin is kind of named after him. So I've told Colin, now's your chance to try to become chief of the clan since they wouldn't let the first Colin over 100 years ago. So there you have my family tree. You got a lot of wonderful things, but you've got mutiny, infighting, bootlegging, and un unresolved conflict over who's in charge. So <laughs> there's just a whole lot there. Now... The text is about the family tree of Jesus that goes way back to Abraham in this case. Did any of you count the names? 47. But there are a lot of repeats. So Hillary had to le read a lot more than that. There are 47 names. Some of them you know. Some you don't. 42 men. Five women, a pair of twins, a whole lot of misbehavior of all kinds. But there's one undisputed title of who's chief, Jesus himself. So what does this all mean? This is a, just a fascinating passage. I've looked at it over the years. I, I love it. And you think, what can you do with 47 names? There's so much here. I want to give you the big picture. And I want to just look at it in two main points. I want to give you the big picture of how the genealogy points to the coming of Jesus, the Christ, the ultimate Messiah to which 
they, Old Testament people, looked forward to and to whom we look back, of course. But I want to drill down uh, into it just a little bit of the kinds of people that Jesus came for. Jesus came for sinners. He came for Gentiles. He came for outsiders. He came for people who are horribly sinful. They are in this embarrassing family tree because those are precisely the people that he came to save. And it's, it's just wonderful gospel truths. So first of all, Jesus is the fulfillment of the promises. He came to as the promised Messiah, the Christ, the anointed one. If you remember, of course, it, three times in the text, it speaks of Jesus, the Messiah. And you may know this, but we often think of Jesus Christ as kind of a first and last name. That's actually not how it, you read it and how you understand it. It is Jesus, the Christ, Jesus the Messiah, the same word, or Jesus, the anointed one. So it is a title. And so in this translation, it is Jesus, the Messiah. It would be just as well to say Jesus, the Christ, the anointed one. Because you may remember that in the Old Testament, how was it that a king was set apart, they would pour oil over his head to symbolize the outpouring of the blessing of God on that king. And so in the Old Testament text that we read, that Alan read earlier in the service, it says, why do the nations conspire and the peoples plot in vain? The kings, the kings of the earth rise up and the rulers band together against the Lord and against his anointed against his Christ, against his Messiah. So Jesus Christ, of course, is the, the ultimate Messiah's coming. Now, just very briefly, one of the things that you want, might want to do is you might take a Bible in front of you or your device, and you'll see that this genealogy is divided up into three sections. And this is kind of three periods of the history of Israel. And even if you don't know all the names, see the big picture. You, could, you can go back. There's, each of those names represents a whole story. But we're first of all meant to see the big picture is that Matthew has arranged kind of the history of Israel from Abraham to Jesus in three big frames. One of them is Abraham to David, where the promise to Abraham comes that in you, Abraham, all the nations will be blessed. This is the first gospel promise that came. You may remember that God appeared to Abraham in Genesis 17 and said, Abraham, in you, all the nations of the earth will be blessed. Not just meaning Jews, but all the nations who would come to believe in the Messiah who would come. And, and from Abraham, it, you have this rising action that ends up with David, who is, without question, Israel's greatest king, who defeated his enemies and who defeated his Goliath and who was the man after God's own heart, who walked with God. And this was 
Israel's greatest king. But then you have David. And if you look at the second reign, you have David ending up with Jeconiah and his brothers at the time of what? The exile in Babylon. That was the kingship and the monarchy that literally cracked these days. You had some good kings, but they just got worse and worse and worse. And finally, at the end of that, God said, enough is enough. And they were sent off into exile in Babylon. And in in the book of Daniel, you can read about this little colony of Jews in exile in Babylon. So that's just the bottom. But then in the next reign, after the exile to Babylon, you go through a set of names. Most of those names you don't know because they're not actually in the Old Testament. These are the names of the men who would have been kings if there had been a king. They were the royal line. They would have been kings, but there was no king. And this leads up to Jesus. Sheltiel and Zerubbabel were governors. And then, from as best we can tell, Matthew got these names out of the public records because the last several aren't in Old Testament scripture at all, but there would be public records with the genealogy. They kept very good track of it. And so what you have here is a royal line. Now, in America, we don't have a line, a royal line. But in Britain, there is, of course, a royal family. They're a bit dysfunctional, too, it seems. But right now, there's four of them. There's Queen Elizabeth II, who is 95. Then there is Prince Charles, who had been married to Princess Diana, and then they divorced. So he's second. He had two sons. The third, I'm going to get this right, it's Prince William, who's married to Catherine. Anyone know the name of the fourth in line? It's Prince George. Yeah, there's, they have four children now. There's a George, there's a Charlotte, but it's Prince George, if I got that right. And then, get these names right. Prince William's brother, Harry, married the actress Meghan Markle, and apparently they opted out of the royal family. So there's a bit of dysfunction there, but we don't have that in America. But that it's somewhat ceremonial, but that's how a royal line works. It's passed down by family. That is how the genealogy of Jesus came. And it, it was a rather dysfunctional family, too. But it ends up that who is it that is a descendant of King David? It is Joseph. Joseph who is the husband of Mary, who was the mother of Jesus, who is called the Christ. All that you've been waiting for, all the fulfillment of the promises, 
are fulfilled, not in a conquering king like David, but in a baby born in humility who would come to gather the nations. It wasn't what they were expecting, but this is Jesus the Christ. And this is what we rejoice in, is that after everything just crashed and burned, they looked forward, we look back to Jesus, the Christ, the anointed one who we worship every day. But this time of year in particular when we celebrate and go through that story yet again. So that's the first thing. Jesus is the Christ. But secondly, we need to see that the genealogy shows us the kinds of people that Jesus came to. You'll notice that there are four women in the genealogy. Well, five women. Four in the Old Testament part and then Mary. So there's actually five. And that's unusual because in Old Testament genealogies, the women usually weren't named. So since they're there, they're pointing out something. Best we can tell, all of the women were Gentiles. A woman named Tamar, a Canaanite. Rahab was an Amorite. Bathsheba, she's not named. She's called Uriah's wife. She was a Hittite. But Ruth, if you read the book of Ruth, which is a wonderful little book from the Old Testament, she is called a Moabitess because her parents fled from Israel down into the land of Moab and her sons married Moabite women, which they weren't supposed to do because that was a pagan culture. But in the book of Ruth, she's always called the Moabitess. Because she was an outsider. But she had wonderful faith in the God of Israel. And instead she came to take refuge under the wings of the God of Israel. I'm going to preach the book of Ruth. That would be a great Advent series. Wonderful story. And I love the book of Ruth because that's the name of one of my sisters. And uh, just a wonderful Ruth story. But Deuteronomy 23 says that no Ammonite or Moabite or any of their descendants may enter the assembly of the Lord, even down to the 10th generation. They were such bad influences, it says, don't stay anywhere near those idolaters. Now just imagine, because at Christ Presbyterian Church, we want to welcome in people of all kinds, don't we? But can you imagine if we said something like, you know, uh, we want you to come, but we're a little exclusive. And which nationality should I pick on? Italian? Anyone Italian? Okay. Let's, let's just pick on you. Or even if you're Scotch or something. If you're Italian, you can't come through our doors for 10 generations. So welcome, but come back in 400 years and we'll let you in. We don't want you here. But in a sense, that's what they were told in the Old Testament. These Moabites are idolaters and just stay away. But Ruth, the Moabitess, 
married in the relationship of Jesus. And so Jesus is pointing this finger at Gentiles. And the gospel promises for all the nations. And Ruth was kind of established as a woman of faith. And that is the gospel promise that in Christ, you're all sons of God through faith. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek, Moabitess or Hittite, you might say. There's neither slave nor free, male and female. You're all one in Christ. And we have been included. But if we push deeper, it isn't just that Jesus came for Gentiles, but Jesus came for sinners. You can go back and read the story of each of these names, and you can find incredibly great things, but you can find things that are just awful and embarrassing. Abraham, the great man of faith, not once but twice, he lied about his wife and said, she's my sister, to protect himself. You have Jacob. He was a great one, wasn't he? A schemer, a thief, a cheat. He stole his own brother Esau's blessing. Heir in the line of Jesus. How about Judah and his brother? The 12 sons of Jacob, remember them? You had Joseph, who was something of a spoiled brat, if you read the story. And then the brothers get so jealous, they want to kill him. But they said, oh, let's be nice to him. Let's just sell him off into slavery in Egypt so we never have to see him again. And for probably at least 20 years, they lied about him to their father, saying, Oh, he was killed, but he wasn't. He was off in Egypt, putting it, put in prison. And that's a whole story in and of itself. And then you have Judah. There's Perez and Zerah, mothered by Tamar. This is a bizarre story. In Genesis chapter 38, because Judah had three sons, and I'll try to make this brief, because you can go back and read Genesis 38, because it's just bizarre. Judah had three sons, Ur and Onan and Shelah and Ramah. And the firstborn died. And do you remember the Old Testament law that if there was a married couple and the husband died, his brother was supposed to marry his wife and carry on the well, the next one didn't want to have children through her, so he died. And then Judah said, I've lost two sons because of Tamar. I'm not giving him my third. And so Tamar poses as a prostitute, and Judah sleeps with, his, with her. It's just disgusting and just horrible. And she becomes pregnant, and the line carries on that way, and it 
it's, it's so crazy. But apparently she had some understanding. The line of Judah must continue. Judah won't do it. So I'll make sure he doesn't. Just this horribly sinful dysfunctional way. And then you have Rahab accusing a prostitute in her past. But then you have Solomon. Now his mother was who? Bathsheba. But in the genealogy, she isn't named. Did you see what it said? It said, David was the father of Solomon, whose mother had been Uriah's wife. Because you know the story from 2 Samuel of how David, who was already married, committed adultery with Bathsheba. She gets pregnant. They try to cover it up. Doesn't work. So David has her husband, Uriah, who is one of his most loyal soldiers. Put him in the front line of the battle, Joseph. Make sure he gets killed so we can get rid of him. It's, it's horrible. David was called to repentance, and eventually he did repent, and he has that wonderful Psalm 51 that shows his repentance. But Solomon was born out of a marriage that never should have happened. Because David became the husband of Bathsheba by committing adultery with her and killing off her husband. And at some point we'll look at that story because you, you show how his lack of faith led him to this and that's another story for another time. But This, these are the kind of people who are in the line of Jesus Christ. Men behave so. Women behave so. Littered with sexual sin. Men refusing to carry out their responsibility. Men committing adultery. Women committing adultery. Violence. Manipulation. Lying. Cheating. Trickery. Selfish ambition. Being a spoiled brat coveting, and an incredible amount of disgust to cover it all up. What a mess. Such an embarrassing family tree. But what do we see right in this group? Same thing. Men behaving badly, women behaving badly. Sexual sin, perhaps, in our past. Men refusing to carry out responsibilities. Lying, cheating, violence. Trickery, selfish ambition, coveting. A whole lot of lying to cover it up. And in our own way, perhaps not as horribly as you see in this genealogy, our hearts lead us all the time.
my story in advance of my life is, is in that family tree. I hope better than they hope. And this, of course, is the wonderful truth that Jesus came to change kind of people that brought Jesus, the, the royal lines that brought Jesus into the world are the kinds of people who choose adultery, murder, lying, deceit. He didn't come for the righteous, but for sinners. And I finish with this just incredible gospel promise that was read as our New Testament reading from Hebrews 2, verses 10 and following. In bringing many sons and daughters to glory, it is fitting that God, to whom and to whom everything is joined, should make the pioneer of their salvation perfect through what he suffered, both the one who makes people holy and those who are made holy are of the same family. So Jesus, listen to this, Jesus is not ashamed to call them brothers and sisters. I'll declare your name to my brothers and sisters in the assembly. I will sing your praise. When I look at that behavior, I'd be ashamed if that was my family. I would be ashamed to call people like that my brothers and sisters. He's not. He looks at us, he's not ashamed to call us his brothers and sisters in spite of what we are because his righteousness through the cross completely covers us. This church that is this massive, dysfunctional, sinful mess redeemed by the blood of Jesus through his death and resurrection He's not ashamed to call you brother and sister. If you're part of his family through the cross, by what we work, by being good as his ministers, but purely by his grace. His sons and daughters, daughters and sons. Amen? Please join me in our prayer together.